Hi, and welcome once again to From the Center, a podcast by the Center for Western Studies. I'm Jack Val on faculty at the Center for Western Studies, joined as always by my friend and colleague, the director of the Center for Western Studies, John Hodges. Sir, Happy New Year. Of the Center, by the Center, and for... HTTP slash slash colon for the center of the for the of the center thing that's what you have to look forward to if you come to the center for western studies that's right that's right and if you're interested in commenting on any of the things that we're talking about here we'd love to have your input you can send uh emails to me at director at centerws.com and we will be very glad to respond We've had some nice emails lately uh, about <clears throat> people who've liked our podcasts. Mm-hmm. One was saying that uh, that the uh, Electoral College one was very helpful, and he teaches school, and he's going to be uh, using our examples from that uh, in his uh, politics classes. And we'll be charging him royalties. We- <laughs> I've already sent him a, a invoice. <laughs> uh, and I'm uh, just kidding. And... <laughs> Uh, and then another one actually wrote and said how much she gets a kick out of all of them. She's listened to all of our podcasts, which I think is – there should be you know, hazardous duty pay or something that we send her <laughs> with, for uh, having listened to all of them. But at any rate, uh, we're grateful to have any kind of response uh, from you, and so we'd be glad to answer questions or uh, criticisms or anything you think. Mm-hmm. What's on your mind, Hodges? Well, it's a new year. New it's, year. it's a new year, a new decade. You know, I, I was just reading some statistics about 2019, and one of them that was very interesting to me was uh, that the uh, birth rate in the United States uh, has gone down further. In 2018, uh, the birth rate in America was the lowest it's been in 32 years. But then I understand that now that they've done the statistics on 2019, uh, it's even lower. And it may be the lowest uh, in the history of our country, Ooh. or at least the history of keeping records like that. Mm. And that gave me pause. If you've <laughs> followed, the, followed those kinds of t- statistics around the world, um, Japan and Canada and Europe, most of the European countries, are all... Uh, losing ground in terms of their uh, birth rates. Japan, they, I've read that they've gone so far below their replenishable birth rate that they may not recover from it, which is an incredible thing. You know, you won't have enough children to have enough children. Oh dear. So, uh, the, the birth rate, I'm told that the birth rate needs to be, I think, 2.1 children per couple in order to break even. Right. So two children and a pug, basically. <laughs> right. right, a gerbil. <laughs> no, no, you have to have the number be a little higher than two because of infant mortality and uh-huh. other things to, to break even. So if two, two parents get together and they have two children and a little bit more on average, uh, the, the European rates are, are way below that now, uh, 1.7, 1.5, something like that. Uh, so the Europeans are simply not having as many children as they used to. The um, Canadian rates are about that low, too. Um, and ours, I think, have gone down to 1.7. So that's below, that's below the number that you need to keep uh, the population the same. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the big problem will be that as a large number of elderly people uh, enter, in reti- enter retirement, 
um, and the the social security arrangements are supported by the young younger generation, right? The right. ones that are working. So, if you have fewer workers and you have more dependents, that's very hard financially on your country. Yeah. So there's a big problem there. But I was reading uh, a couple of articles about it, and I thought this might be worth talking about. There's several reasons that people give for reduced birth rate. One of the main ones is that uh, as a country becomes more uh, wealthy, as it becomes more uh, affluent, uh, the the need for children or the pressure for for children goes down. Um, and part of that, I think, and I think Andrew Claven talked about this one time, but it may have been others too. One of the reasons is that uh, when we've been a more agrarian society, uh, a child, having a child is actually a big help because they can, a child can work on the farm at a relatively early age, right? You can milk cows at eight years old or whatever. Right. Uh, but as we've moved from that into an industrial society and now into a more technological society, children actually don't do anything that can generate an income for a long time. Right. They just consume resources. Exactly. Exactly. So you can understand why people might be a little more reluctant to have a lot of children or children at all for a while uh, until they are more well-established and can afford it. So the, the financial aspect of having children, I think, is a big part of it. People complain about the millennials sometimes that they're maybe being irresponsible or something and waiting to get married and all that. But I'm not sure that's a fair assessment, <clears throat> not just because you're a millennial. Thank uh, you. Yeah. But, <laughs> but because, uh, I mean, there really is a kind of a desire to, to do it well, to do it right, and, and uh, wait until you have enough money to be able to have children. Yeah, well, our generation, I mean, you said uh, once that a, general, a generalization is something that's true 51% of the time. Right. Or I think, uh, right. I think Cal Beisner said something to the effect of all generalizations are wrong, but some are useful. Oh, yeah. Which is a fun little paradoxical that makes, statement. That makes sense. Um, there are probably multiple genera- general sort of broad brush strokes you can make about why current generations, mainly millennials, because we're like of the childbearing. Well, you're of the, that's right. I know, right? You're of the age. The next generation who apparently have taken the name Zoomers. Is that right? Did you know I haven't this? heard that. I've heard that. I don't know if that's official yet. I've just heard that one <laughs> slowly cropping up. It's some combination of Generation Z and Boomers. I don't know why, but huh. they call themselves Zoomers. That's interesting. So, anyway. You heard it here first, everybody. Uh, yes, you heard it. At the Center for Western Studies. You heard studies. it here. Um, anyway, they're not probably quite at childbearing age just yet. Okay. So it's, it's mostly us, the millennials, those born through the 80s and the 90s, basically. Right. There's probably mo- the problem is that our situations are so complex and individuated. There's probably multiple broad stroke generalizations you can make. Sure. So, like one example is the you know the negative caricature that you know millennials are entitled and bratish and right. selfish and children are a burden to my globe trotting you know world citizenry or, or something right. like that. You know, right. which I mean we've heard stories of those. I remember, oh gosh, I can't remember if it was in Newsweek or Time magazine. Uh, former magazines, mm. but um, I don't remember. But there was an article somewhere uh, in some major publication, which is a bunch of interviews or a ba- bunch of instiga- investigations of a bunch of millennial level people who are kind of the age to like get married and have kids, but they weren't having it, and all their explanations were extremely selfish and self-centered. But the magazine was trying to cast it in this, 
you know, let's understand them and see their perspective. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to gag the whole time because I was like, they're so obviously being narrow-minded, self-centered, selfish people. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. kids are just a burden to my self-exploration or something like that. <laughs> so I always want to say, well, it's a good thing your parents didn't think that. <laughs> Right. Because you know how it is, right? The, the old joke is that having children is hereditary. Yeah. If, if your parents didn't have any, the chances are neither would you. <laughs> neither would you. Yes. Uh, so they're, they're there. So that's one, Roberts. Another one, I guess, on the opposite end of the spectrum, the positive caricature is that millennials, they grew up with parents who are either boomers, like my parents, or maybe Gen Xers, you know, if they had, like, younger parents. Yeah or they were born in the 90s. Uh, but their parents grew up in a society where there was a very standard model of things. You know, you go up, you graduate high school, go to college, get your degree, get a job, get settled, have a family and kids. Mm-hmm. Right? And that was supposed to happen in, like, relatively rapid succession. Mm-hmm. You know, graduate high school at 18, into college, maybe two, maybe four years later, you know, you're 20 or 22, you get your first career, maybe in three years or something, you're pretty well established. So now you're like... 25 or 27 or something like that, family, kids, boom, 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 you're done. Mm-hmm. Right, you got it. That was the thing they were told, that we were told. Well, most of us, especially the older ones, those of us born in the 80s, but most of us came of age, we like entered college or graduated college when the big financial crisis in 2007 happened. Right. And so when we came out of college, we suddenly found, well, we found two things. One had to do with the financial crisis and one had nothing to do with the financial crisis. The one that had to do with the financial crisis is that simply having a college degree did not guarantee you a job anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, the ridiculousness of like how flooding the market with degreed people makes absolutely absurd qualifications now for jobs. People have shared pictures on Twitter and Instagram of job applications that say, you know, your pay rate is like 15 bucks an hour and your minimum qualification is a master's degree. Good night. It's like, (laughs) really? Okay. So we walk into a world where simply having a college degree doesn't get you a job. Right. So that's the financial crisis thing. And we walked into a world where nobody seemed to tell us and we didn't seem to pay attention that college tuition is ridiculously expensive and is nothing like our parents where they could like work, you know, a evening waitress job or something like that and pay for their tuition mm-hmm. whereas we couldn't we couldn't have three jobs simultaneously and pay for the tuition oh, and right. go to school right so we not only come out with degrees that are useless or it's actually really hard to find work we also come laden with a ton of debt yes yes and so the more positive generalization and caricature is that the reason millennials aren't having kids not because they're selfish and bratish is because they're the most overworked and disadvantaged generation ever Mm, and there's a common theme going around that's you know this is how like caricatures beget caricatures that you know uh, the boomers have ruined the millennials (laughs) or something like that Uh, gosh i wish we would stop with that nonsense but anyways they the positive caricature is that they've inherited a system that was actually set up to cause them to fail and so they've inherited all that. So that's like the positive generalization versus right. the negative one of selfishness. Right. In between all that, like I said, is, I mean, is reality, is reality yeah. where individual reasons vary. I mean, the, the negative caricature one didn't make much sense to me because I have friends. I mean, I have one friend, a roommate of mine. I mean, he got married and almost like in rapid succession, just boom, 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 have three kids. And he's and he graduated from school while working like two jobs and his job work, and his wife working one. Wow. So definitely overworked, but he's not lazy, selfish, bratish, and entitled. Nor is he 
disadvantage. I mean, he's working in tight constraints, but he's succeeding. Like he's doing good. Yeah. And his buddy, there's a he has a friend who owns who owns his own house and owns his own property, and is like super self survival. Likes to camp out in the woods all the time and builds most of his own mm. things. My own wife is an absolute alchemist in the kitchen. I caught her one day. I came in and in the Dutch oven was something bubbling and yellow and it smelled lemony and I was like, ooh, what's this for? I was like thinking like a pastry or something and she's like, oh, that's dishwasher detergent. She was making she's her making her own making her own dishwasher detergent. Wow. What a girl. So like this idea, so like I know that the negative caricature can't be the truth because there's plenty of people like super hard working people on generation. Yeah. But even the disadvantaged one doesn't ring true either because Entirely true either, because when I was working at a furniture store just last year, uh, by the way, I worked at a furniture store last Did year, you? which was really fun, relatively. Anyway, <laughs> we can cut that out. Anyway, when I was working at a furniture store, I mean, there, were, there was a good enough amount of people in like their mid-20s who had just bought their house, and they were ready to drop $6,000 on all new furniture for Wow. It. You know, like financed out, but still. They were perfectly successful and perfectly advantaged. Mm. Most of them had blue-collar jobs, mm -hmm. right, and, like, vocational work. That's interesting, isn't That's it? That's interesting, too. But they were, they were all in their 20s, uh -huh. you know, or, like, their mid to late 20s. They were young millennials, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So neither of those caricatures rang, tr rang true for me. Somewhere in the middle, the reasons why the birth rate is falling is probably some conspiracy of multiple reasons. Mm. Probably from the, I think you mentioned earlier, like, the more affluent a society becomes, the more children are seen less as an asset and more as a liability. Yeah. Which is... Well, they literally are, if you only count them as money. Yeah, so that's... They literally... Yeah. literally in, a, in a technological society, you don't know enough to be able to get a job to do technology until you're old enough to be able to, you know, make sense of things. Yeah. And whereas manual labor is on the farm would be a much easier task for anybody yeah however <laughs> at the same time uh it seems like it's the eight-year-olds in the world that know how to handle computers and technology better <laughs> than all of us older guys but never mind that <laughs> maybe that undermines my whole point mm. um but no i mean there is still something to that that like that's right in that a is, society that is more i mean sure they can run their computers but i mean like truly like developing a software program or developing right. or something like that in a technological and more highly industrialized affluent society there's less and less kids can do until they come of a certain age so the, yeah there's a longer stretch of time where they are strictly consumers now that's the thing i like how you said if you see them just in terms of money right right which is one of those which, things which you can't do no you can't you can't do that i mean you mustn't nobody really does uh except statisticians and you know who they are <laughs> <laughs> what scum they are. No. Oh, they don't count. Oh, they, that's just what they do. Um, right. I, I would like to pursue this idea that, um, now, shoot, it just went out of my head. What was it you said about, um, oh, I would like to pursue this idea that it's the blue-collar workers that were able to come in and feel more established and able to, you know, start their lives, uh, their their financial and, and social lives. It's interesting to me that that the university education now has come to the point where you can't get a job and you're in debt, but if you didn't go to the university and you became a plumber or an electrician or a, a welder, you might actually be making a pretty good living mm -hmm. without a college degree at all. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, that one is becoming more and more common, which, I mean, this was not my experience because my parents weren't idiots, but I never, there apparently was some sort of caricature. I keep using the word caricature. I guess that's my it's my new term. Word. It's a new year, new decade. I've moved from frustrated to caricature. <laughs> Oh, don't leave frustration behind. Right, fine. If you if you got to be fr- the, the whole podcast is worked, worked around your frustration. I'm, I'm very frustrated by this caricature <laughs> that that apparently like somehow you're well. It was like this idea that everybody was told you're supposed to get a degree, like a two or four year degree, and if you go to vocational college, that means you're dumb and you couldn't oh, make right. it or cut it or something like right, that. Right, right. I'm not exactly sure how true that message is because I'm always suspicious right. of when people. What Jonah Goldberg talks about, he's always suspicious of monocausal explanations uh-huh. for things. Uh-huh. I don't know exactly how true that is, but there is today a resurgence in interest, at least in like the sociopolitical conversation, about vocational training. Right. About going to, you know, a two-year vocational school or a one-year vocational school for all I know, and uh, learning a trade. Who and they're built to set you up with work like immediately. Right. 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 There is a resurgence in that. It's fraught with its own problems, and again, they're problems of caricatures. This is a caricatured episode, Hodges. <laughs> I'll, I'll say what I mean. There's a there's a tendency. It's like vocational training is a good, but it being a good does not suddenly negate the goodness of like a. A, what would you call it, a liberal education or uh-huh. something like that, sure. there's a tendency to want to see that, well, going to university is useless, which is you know, not a hard argument to make with the tuition <laughs> and the, what sometimes they teach you in certain departments. The degradation of university education could probably be part of what's going on as well. It could be there's a giant swath of my generation, sure, but maybe a generation of Gen Xers before us who went through the university education and all they got out of it was a non-employable skill and massive debt. Yeah, right. Right? And so those people, you know, are stuck trying to scramble to get a living. There may be a new wave of people, also from my generation, but maybe also of the Zoomers, who grew up thinking that, well, maybe university education is all it's cracked up to be. So let me just get a vocational job that makes me money almost immediately, and if I want to read books, I'll do it on my own time. It can be a bad thing because, again, we always, whenever there's a pendulum swing in some way, the danger that always comes to fruition is that we overcompensate. Right. And so there could be what could be a way of sort of breaking the university's degradation and making universities actually shape up and actually teach things that understand what they're for and understand what they're about could turn into a complete dismissal of any sort of higher education whatsoever is completely useless. I mean, we've often argued that the reason the center exists is because there's a market for it, because we have to speak in market terms about this stuff sometimes. But there's a market for it because instead of like going, you know, we say before you go to college, spend like a year with us, we could almost change our slogan to instead of going to college, Mm -hmm. spend a year with us and then go, you know, do whatever. I mean, Mm -hmm. we've had students who spend a year with us and then they went to vocational school. That's right. Or one of them, I mean, one of them went back to his... uh, dad's bakery where he continues to apprentice that's right he's not going to college he doesn't plan on it we've had others that have gone on to get married and started a family and didn't go to college right at the same time you could see so there's like this opening for us but at the same time you could see the vocational sort of 
craze continues, mm. and a part of that craze is a bashing of like university education, you could see it trickling down to us and people saying that what we do is useless. You know what happens with idols, right? Uh-huh. We, we make an idol out of something, and you can make an idol out of most anything, um, and we admire it and lift it up and, 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 and worship it and so on until we find out that it actually can't do for us what it is we want it to do. Mm-hmm. And the response then is not just indifference. The response then is hatred. Yeah. And so you tear down idols, you destroy them, you smash them, you hate them. Just, and, and sadly, that's how we do with, with each other when we idolize each other. Mm-hmm. But when we, when we idolize the education that we've been offered from university too. I think the pattern is more like this, that we lost the purpose of the university education because it was never actually for use. Yeah, it was never intended for. It. In fact, there are great articles. I think Peter Lightheart's done a good one, if I remember right, uh, called the "University uh, Un- University of Liberal Arts Education is Useless and It's a Good Thing Too." Mm-hmm. It's like that. The, it was never intended to be for use. As soon as you try and make it into a use, then you've actually undermined it. Yeah. Uh, the, pur- the purpose of it was to teach you how to think well yeah. and to see the world properly and to know God ultimately. I mean, that's what really the university education was about. So, if, But if we, let's say we, we lose that goal for ed- education, then we say we want education to become a vocational training s- center. It's got to be, and it may be for some very high-level things, going to medical school or going yeah. to, to uh, the law school. Or, or electrical engineering or something like that. Well, electrical engineering, exactly. Um, any of the sciences. Um, you, can, you, you can learn to be a teacher. You, know, you, go, to, you go to college and, and study English because you want to teach English. Well, it was, you, you didn't go, the idea was you didn't go to college to study English in order to teach English. That might be something you could do down the road, but the reason was the, that, that studying the, the works themselves and the language and grammar and literature and all that, all of that was inherently worthwhile. It actually made you a better person. Yeah. I remember hearing a friend of mine say one time, uh, reading Thomas Hardy won't save your soul, but after reading Thomas Hardy, there'll be more of a soul there to be saved. Yeah. It makes you larger, right? Well, that's what the education was for, is to make you larger, to make your soul larger, so that you can accomplish and see and, and, and all on a, on a spiritual and scale of, yeah, transcendent scale uh, and a principled scale. You live, you, you see principles and you put them into practice and so on. Um, but then but what happens if you make the education into something that requires that it give you a job? So the, job, the purpose of the education is to get you a job. Well, then you find out, just like with an idol, that it actually can't do that. Yeah. So you have to adjust the idol. You have to change the education in order that it could give you that thing that it was not intended to give you to begin with. Right. So now we've adjusted education to be more of a, of a vocational training school, including vocations like medicine and law and so on. All that is vocational training. I'm not just saying blue-collar training. I'm talking any kind of training for vocation, for calling. Uh, And then you find out that the education itself becomes more and more expensive, and it offers you less and less. And if everybody is getting an undergrad degree, then it no longer has the the weight that it should have uh, in the job market. So (laughs) you end up, like you said, needing a a master's degree in order to get a minimum wage job, basically. (laughs) 
So that's, uh, that's, that's, I think, what's really gone on here. We've, asked, we've, we've demanded of education something that it never intended to give. We've talked about this before, but I'll reiterate it here. Uh, in the ancient Greek world, there were two kinds of education. There was education for the free man, which is the kind I'm talking about, where you learn to think well. And, there's, and they called it liberal because it was for a, a free person, liberal education. But the other kind of education was called vocational training, and it was training for a particular job, for shipbuilding or for accounting or for, for uh, whatever, whatever job was needed. But it was the training that you gave slaves. Yeah. That was for the non-free people of, of Greece. So you learned how to become, say, a tutor in Latin, for example, or Greek. So that you, but, but that was the slave that was teaching the free man's kids Latin and Greek, you right. see. But he had to learn how to do that. So there was vocational training for him. And I think we have shifted education almost entirely away from liberal education to vocational training. And as a result, we've demanded of, of liberal education what it never intended to give. But the result then is um, people are putting off getting married because they are trying to wait until they're established a little more financially secure and so on. Uh, one of the things I, I can tell you as a, and you maybe are seeing this now too, uh, as a, as a I know I've been around a little longer, I'm an older guy, mm-hmm. um, you, you can't wait to have a child until you can afford to. Yeah. It, that just doesn't make any sense. It, it ne- you'll never be able to afford it. You'll just put it off until forever. Yeah. Uh, so don't wait. <laughs> but uh, you hear that, kids? <laughs> get out there. Get out get, there. And, get married first. That's right. That's right. That's right. I'm not saying have children. My I'm mom, saying get married. I just said have kids right now. <laughs> I really like that podcast. Well, I'm okay with it. Um, no, get married first, and then you can have your children and have as many as God will allow. But anyway, um, there are some other reasons, I think. There are interesting reasons for maybe uh, a, a reduced birth rate. One of them, and I'm sure we're going to get l- letters about this. but Oh, dear. Um, Buckle up, people. I, <laughs> I think feminism has done a great deal of damage uh, to, to the next generation. <gasps> because it has, it has, frankly, kind of misled women to think that their significance and their purpose in life is uh, in work and not in home and family. Now, that's not to say I'm against women working. Please don't write me about that. I'm Chill, perfectly happy. <laughs> if that's all they hear, then that's, they're, they're not listening very careful. Yeah. Now, now they aren't hearing anything else. But it's actually that woke meter that's, that, I, that I'm talking about. It's kind of a driven, a driven assumption that, and if anybody challenges that assumption, then they're then they're mis- mistreated. But, uh, and I can take mistreatment, fair, fair, send it on. But what I'm trying to say is not that I don't want women in the workplace. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that to tell them that's the only place where they'll be happy is a mistake. Yes. Because there are a lot of women who would really prefer to be able to have children and be at home and take care of those children. Mm-hmm. And to make them feel secondary or inferior because they want to do that I think is actually damaging to the women themselves, but it's more damaging even so to the next generation, Mm -hmm. to the children that won't be had or will be had under certain weird circumstances. Uh, And and, uh, and, and then that 
lie gets passed on to those children too. So I think a second thing is not not just the financial burden of say uh, student loans and, and and all of that, but a kind of a teaching in our society today that says that women aren't really fulfilled or they're not going to be satisfied with their lives uh, unless they are competing in the workplace for the kinds of jobs uh, well that the workplace offers. And I've never quite understood that. I mean, I, I would suggest people go and read uh, some Wendell Berry. Um, but uh, Wendell Berry, uh, in one essay, asks the question, why is it that a woman uh, is being taught that she shouldn't be under the patriarchal system of a husband that takes care of her and should instead go out into the workplace and work in a cubicle for somebody who doesn't care anything about her at all yeah. and be, in a sense, a slave to him instead yeah. or her. So it, yeah, it doesn't make any yeah, sense. Chesterton made a similar point about when he criticized similar ideas. He talked about how they talk about liberating women out of the home and into the brickyard. Yeah, exactly. He's like, he exactly. Didn't, he, and he didn't understand how that was considered liberation because, for him, the idea of home was a bigger thing than the work world. Absolutely and, right. And we've talked about this before on Sunday nights, and this doesn't apply to women. This applies to everybody. Right. One, another cause, I mean, if we could throw it in there, it's probably connected to this, is the kind of sort of devaluation. For a long time, part of me feels like that's swinging around a little bit because I think people are getting sick of it. But for a long time, the devaluation of the concept of the home uh-huh. and of domesticity, right. which is a word that if, for a good long time was used as a pejorative. Mm-hmm. You know, domesticity was seen as something insulting, you know, mm-hmm. to be domestic. You know, to domesticate something means you took all the fun out of it. Uh-huh. You know? Well, that's what I'm talking about. That domestic, domestic life itself is somehow inferior to the life that you can have, you say, the brickyard. I, they, wouldn't, they would laugh at that and say, no, I'm talking about being CEO of a company. But what company? It's a brick company. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just still a brickyard. That's, yeah. it, there's not, it's, it, that's what it is out there. You're actually growing, growing things, making things, doing things that uh, are a service to others, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, but um, what's, what's – how can I say this? The error in judgment is to take someone who could be basically sovereign over her household mm-hmm. and ask her to give that up, that sovereignty, and go and work for somebody else and, and be, in a sense, a, a slave. We, we, used to, we used to sell people into slavery. Yeah, and and uh, now today we don't believe in slavery anymore, but we still sell ourselves into slavery. We don't have somebody. We don't sell somebody else. We sell ourselves. Yeah. So I go and I work for an hourly wage at some company, and I may not even care what the company is doing. It's just a job, you know. Yeah, the devaluation of the idea of home and not just family. I mean, conservatives and traditionalists drum on and on about. The importance of family, but it always sounds like a, a abstraction. Hmm. Like, you know, you just have babies, and that's it. It's better to talk about not family, but family life. Yeah. You know, the life of a family, which is what a home is filled with. Well said. The central importance of the home applies to men and women. You know, it's not that, okay, women are stuck at home. Again, our language is just, has been saturated with this devaluation and demonization of the home. Stuck at home? I'd rather be at home. Me too. Okay, than anywhere else sometimes in the whole world. 
But the idea that somehow, okay, so women are supposed to be stuck at home and men are going to go out there and do like all the adventurous things, I'm like, listen to me. The reason men forget this too, mm -hmm. the reason you're out there working or doing all that stuff is so you can bolster up the home. Mm -hmm. Okay, the whole, you know, stupid, you know, kind of caricature idea of bringing home the bacon kind of thing, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. That idea is you go out there and find resources to bring back so the home can flourish and the Thrive. family life can flourish. You know, guys, your job is to build up the home. That's right. And women, your job is to build up the home. The home is the point. And forgetting that has all kinds of bad consequences to it. Exactly. Yeah, and I, I don't mean by any means to say that the only, only the women should be at home. Mm. I, I love the idea of being at home, and I've always had an office at home, and so I've been able to do that, and I have been able to be home with my son a lot of the time. Mm. But that's not always, that's not something everybody can do. But the idea that the home is the key and the, and the purpose of all of the work that's being done on, in both of their uh, minds uh, is a quite different idea than to say, I'm going out into the world to make a name for myself. I'm trying to become something uh, personally. But if we don't really value the home, we only value self-expression and self-fulfillment and, and all that. No, the point I was trying to make a minute ago about the women is that I think they actually, many of them actually are, find that they're more satisfied with life in that more traditional role than they were in the workplace. It's not everybody. This is a generalization, like we said. All right, 51% of the time. That's right. But I, I remember reading an article the other day that said uh, this woman had become a lawyer and was very successful and and uh, climbing to the top of her, the ladder in her, uh, in her firm, becoming a, a partner and all that, and decided to have a child. And she went, after so many weeks of maternity leave, uh, she went back to work and she f she found out that she didn't love the work anywhere near as much as she loved being with her child. Mm -hmm. And so she said, I'm going to have to make some changes in my life, you see. And, and, and it's, it's for that woman that I want to defend. Right. It, it, when I say uh, that I think feminism has done her a disservice. If feminism steps in at that point and says to her, nope, you're going to be more fulfilled by being a lawyer. I think it's done her done some damage. That's not to say that another woman might have a different attitude. Okay, yeah. I'm just saying that 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 particular one would feel the pressure of now that she's come this far in her career to give it all up to go home and take care of her children is somehow inferior. Yeah. And I want to say that little daughter at home uh, is going to be very grateful. Yeah, that little daughter or son at home is an entire universe. That's right. To be shaped. That's right. And you would get, you know, you would feel that we would pressure people to give that up to follow a career that you're going to retire from in like 30 years. Again, beware of monocausal explanations. Though I feel like there's something, there's something I feel inherent, inherently broken in the Western world and societies that get influenced by Western stuff. Mm. Okay. You know, which is kind of, you know, we're the center for Western studies. That doesn't mean we just laud it and praise it as this unassailable good. It means like pointing out where, hey, here's some things we don't do right. That's right. And there's something there. I mean, Japan, for most of its history, was not a Western country. But then, you know, late 19th through 20th century, it Westernized. And now its birth rate has dropped so low that some statisticians, we keep bringing them into this, don't believe that they can ever recover from it. Yeah. It's dropped so low. And it's like... What is it in the Western world today that has gone so wrong 
that people obsess about career over home. Um, they think of their children in terms of money rather than as something else, something other than just money. What what has gone wrong? Like what like what's fundamentally broken? I mean, it may have something to do. I mean, we could always say like it has something to do with the loss of the transcendent, the loss of God. Which when there's nothing left, especially in a Western society, especially in a modern Western society, the only thing kind of left to fill the void when God's not there, a big force. There's two big forces to fill the void when God's not there. One is the market. The other is the government. Right. Right. Those are the two things that can fill the void. So, business, career, being successful, making your mark. You're uh, making your mark in purely market terms, right? Or the government trying to like, you know, government. And by government, I don't even just mean the government as a body. I also mean like politics and like maybe I should say market and politics is like the two ways to sort of fill the void where God's not there. Those are the two ways where you can feel like you can have some sort of meaning and direction in some ways. But I don't think that the market, either the market or politics, sees the home correctly. Like them by themselves right. don't see the home correctly. We've said this before. I mean, it's it's sort of the, in my opinion, the deeper meaning of Buckley's remark about how the problem of capitalism is capitalist, the problem of socialism is socialism, mm -hmm. right? The problem of capitalism is capitalist because capitalism, which I prefer the term free markets, free markets don't work unless there's some kind of moral architecture around them That's right. that is not market-based, right? Roger Scruton and other conservatives wrote the Paris Statement a few years back, talked about the danger of what they called the totalization of market forces, exactly. which is when everything is seen ter in terms exclusively of the market. And, you know, the objectivists and really more hardcore libertarians out there would say, that's great, but it's not great. You know, it's not great because the market doesn't understand, how to put this, the market doesn't understand spiritual goods. Mm -hmm. And politics, when it's when it's divorced from a moral architecture, and politics divorced from a sp spiritual moral architecture also doesn't understand spiritual goods. <laughs> no, they only understand both markets and politics devoid of any sort of spiritual moral architecture, you know, surrounding them, giving them a definite shape. All they understand is material goods, mm -hmm. and that's it. And how best to arrange them and build them up, and that's it. So. Maybe it's a problem of materialism. Yes, That's as a exactly philosophy, what it is. not as like the eighty song about a material girl. <laughs> but I think that might be the problem: is a kind of rank and rampant materialism. Yes, it's sort of. It's just there in the atmosphere. It's not. People might not even articulate it this way, but you know, because they might not think about it. But it's just sort of there. The only thing that exists is and really matters is material goods. And everything needs to be oriented around the material goods. So if your kids aren't increasing material goods, or your career isn't increasing material goods, or motherhood, or fatherhood, or you know, vocational training isn't, or your university education isn't, or whatever it is, is not increasing your material goods, or creating more material goods, or better arranging and distributing and redistributing the material goods, well, then something must be wrong. Exactly. Yeah, and I think there's a, an interesting uh, fallout a repercussion from that division once you take the transcendent out of the equation and you turn to those two things to the business world to the markets or to politics uh, and and uh, and uh, the government the two of them and end up turning on each other mm -hmm. um, or making unholy alliances yeah one of those other they either 
are pitted against each other or they link up. That's right, in some in some very evil ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's but I think politically speaking, we can see a real division between those who are in favor of big business and those who are in favor of big government. Right. You know, and then people in the businesses and in the government who are in favor of you know uh, that's and then that's right. The, the the ones that have really made it, as it were, materially, are the ones lately that have uh, figured out ways to to uh, well, they've corrupted. <clears throat> they've corrupted both the government and the and the markets by uh, by writing laws that make their company stronger than another guy's company, which we call crony capitalism. Yeah, um, and so it's understandable why each of them then would point the finger at the other one to a degree and say, "You're cor- you're the reason that the pro- there's a problem. You're the corruption in the in the day." Uh, if you if you crummy businessmen wouldn't stop being so greedy, we'd all be fine. So we have to make more laws that will keep you from being uh, so so greedy. And the the corporations say we have the markets to take care of us, but you guys are in, encroaching on us so much. Big government is really a bad idea, and so uh, we need to reduce government and get the regulations out of the way. And in both cases, they're right to a degree. Uh, but in both cases, they're also misguided because they've left what they've done is they've left out that third element, the transcendent framework that's supposed to give both of those a moral, a moral framework. Another reason, another uh, cause maybe of why there would be uh, a reduction in childbirth rates, uh, I think, is um, uh, our understanding of sex and procreation. Mm-hmm. And this is another big uh, taboo subject I know to talk about. <laughs> so we're just hitting all of them today. I, I know, right? We're the the woke, people's woke meters are going to just go but if, crazy. But if you if you separate procreation from sexual activity, if you separate the two from from each other, then why shouldn't it become more more libertarian about our sexual proclivities, and at the same time? have fewer children mm-hmm. uh, because those two things are no longer connected together. It used to be that we understood that the home was the most important thing, as you've just been saying, and that having the next generation is what the home is for, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so marriage is a way for to assure that there is a secure home for children to grow up in and, and so on. But if if the sexual drive... It doesn't lead toward its proper ends, marriage and children. Mm-hmm. Then the sexual drive itself can go wild, can go mad, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit like this. I think a better an- a- analogy would be if we were to separate out the enjoyment of eating food from the nourishment that that food provides for the body. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> if you did that, well, then you could just your taste buds could lead you wherever you wanted to go. Um, in wilder and wilder and wilder ways without ever having to ingest any of the food. You could just chew it up and spit it out again, mm-hmm. or as anorexics do, which is even right. worse, more, more horrifying. Yeah. Uh, but but then, then the purpose of it is not to sustain you, and you can enjoy the practice of sustaining yourself, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, the purpose of, uh, of se- the sexual drive is for procreation, but you can obviously enjoy the the uh, the activity of procreating yeah. so within the the confines of marriage uh so what we've done is we've taken the fences off and then we've wondered why there is dissipation and wild abandon 
without and and then the, the and at the same time the child rate uh, goes down and people get cagey about even having kids yeah. you know sometimes for money maybe sometimes because it impinges upon their independence and sometimes because having a child implies a family and a family implies a home and a home and i feel like we know this you know even if we fight against it or our orientation is built towards nothing but material goods once the prospect of a home is in your life because you have kids and stuff like that everything starts to reorient right. it's almost like there's a mag there's like a magnetic or gravitational pull that just reorients everything wants to reorient everything back to that sure i mean and i think it's a good thing that it wants to reorient to that reorient its way back to that there was a coworker i worked with a while ago who was an he told me like he was an absolute wild child um, and by wild child, I mean like in his teens and 20s. Absolute wild child. Mm -hmm. He told me he would drink, he would drugs, he would sleep with everybody. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his buddy was also working at the same place I was working at. And his buddy seemed to be the more kind of energetic wild guy. But he was like, nah, I said back when we were, in our, we were in our 20s, he would drag me out of bars because I was trying to fight everybody. No. But now he has a job and married and stuff like that. And he just, he seems very, he's a very professional, very smart, business-minded person. And I'm like, well, what changed? Does not mind me asking what changed? And he's like, easy, my son was born. Yes. It's like, as soon as his son was born, he said it was like a switch went off, and he's like, I gotta get my act together. I gotta, like, do something. So there's this almost, like, inevitable pull back towards, here's a child, here's a family, we need a home. Right. And you can't, and it's not good enough that the home is just adequate. Okay, it's a roof, electricity, food, there you go. It's almost like, again, that's just thinking in terms of material goods. It's almost like you have to... Fill it with goodness yes. somehow. You, know, you have to make their life wonderful. I was thinking about your food example. You know, having the attitude that the only point of eating food is just to get the taste and the experience of the taste, but no nutrition. So you just kind of eat and chew and stuff and spit it out, you know, kind of like uh, wine tasters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's thing. right. Right? Uh, is a bad thing. But the opposite extreme, I think, is also equally as bad, where it's like, well, all that matters is nutrition. Uh -huh. Who cares about taste? Right. So here's, you know, it's kind of like in the Matrix when they're like on the ship and they are eating some kind of oh, high protein, horrible. whatever. It's got all the nutrients, the body of the, it's just this white, pasty goop. Right. They're like, if you close, <laughs> they're like, if you close your eyes, it's kind of like eating runny eggs or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It's like, what we need is this, this, Balance is not the right word. This harmony there you go. between nutrition and taste, where it's like the best meals are the ones that are utterly nutritious and delicious at the same time. So it's like the best home is the one that is secure and solid and has all the basic necessities and is filled with something else, mm. you know, with, with light and love and laughter and, 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 good, and spiritual goods. So it's like a, harmonize, a, a proper home is a harmonization of the material and spiritual goods. And... A home is somehow implied in it, not somehow it is implied in family and, and family is implied in children. Mm -hmm. So yes, if you separate sex and procreation and make it where sex is just its own thing alone, and you try to make sex for itself is like trying to make food simply about taste instead of nutrition. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's not how it's supposed to work. That's right. There ought to be a harmonization there. That's right. That's right. And if you leave out one part of the of the uh, one element of the harmony, then you lost the harmony. And so, it's not surprising that at the same time that birth rates are going down, and as a result, to a degree, of our separating these two things out, if we make the sexual the purpose of sex the experience, then it's not surprising that. 
pornography would go through the roof and sexual uh, addiction would go through the roof mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, uh, sexual slavery even or prostitution, that kind of thing, would also become uh, epidemic mm-hmm. because we've made the experience the thing without the, without the meaning, mm-hmm. without the depth, without the nutrition, if you will. Um, yeah, but yeah, you, but the, it requires that you have the ability to say, like your friend, now that my son is born, I feel a responsibility to look after this guy and to give him something uh, that uh, that he can't give himself. Right when he's three years old or whatever, he can't he can't provide for himself. You have to do it for him. Um, but uh, but the, but the the child suddenly suddenly has your heart. Right, your your affection for him and your need to give to him supersedes your even your own uh, goals and, uh, and 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 so on. So uh, yeah, your, everything in your life kind of reorients itself, and I think in a in a more proper way. And it's not surprising too, at the same time that uh, that God before the fall gave Adam and Eve some things to do, mm-hmm. and one of them was be fruitful and multiply. Right. That's that's actually pre-fall work that we were supposed to do. That's part of who we are. Right. So there's a third reason that uh, that uh, birth rates might have fallen off is that uh, we have fewer teen pregnancies. And I looked into the statistics about that, and sure enough, teen pregnancies are down actually, <laughs> yeah. which is good, I guess. <laughs> kind of a mixed blessing, right? <laughs> well, especially if you start thinking about why. Yeah. So if it's abortion that's making them. They're not counting aborted pregnancies as teen pregnancies. Right. Then you could understand the numbers going down, but that would be for a horrible reason, wouldn't it? I mean, it's one of those. It reminds me of people saying, you know, like, you know, abortion rates have been going down for like decades now, and I'm like, yeah, so's the birth rate. So it's kind of like that's right. Maybe we're not having less abortions because we've gotten more moral about our duties to the unborn. Maybe we're having less abortions because we're just having less babies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, we're doing abortions work for it. Uh, the teen pregnancy thing is like teen pregnancy bad you know you should we don't think you know we don't believe that that's good so it's good that that's down you know but the assumption is that it's good that it's down because more people have grown up got married and had kids and are able to actually provide a family right. and provide a home right i don't think that can be drawn i yeah i don't, I think, don't that's the think that's either case. either the case either yeah so well connected to the teen pregnancy thing i've heard arguments from people who I don't know, like, what statistics they're basing on. I've heard arguments from people that because of having, like, I don't know what by now, four decades of the sexual revolution, yeah. that Five. The, the, this new gener- like the next generations coming up, from the millennial to the Zoomers, I guess, um, are actually just bored with sex. Hmm. They're just bored with it. Just, there's, nothing, there's nothing about it that seems alluring or interesting or just whatever, which can turn into, like, turning to more radical forms of it, but it can also turn into just a complete disinterestedness, you know? I mean, it's not that they give up sexual experience, period, because that's just not, I don't think that's biologically possible, but somehow there's just sort of a, eh, about the whole thing. It's not, it's not the big deal it was anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to orient your whole life around it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know how true that is. It's probably another generalization, so it's probably just another facet of it. But there's something about sex divorce from procreation for decades and decades and decades renders sex not liberating but boring 
it may be the, the disassociation from procreation, or it may be the, simply the the, the uh, promiscuity of it all, so that it's not it's no longer an, uh, something that you share with only one person intimately. Right. It's something that you do with loads and loads of people, and at the drop of a hat. So right. it's, it loses its, its weight that way. So it might be. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of saying the same thing, but it might be better to frame it. It's the disconnection of sex from family and home. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. very different when it's like having kids with a spouse. Because, look, children, if you don't think it in material terms, children do add something. Oh, yes. All right? They add, they enrich the family and the home, right? So they, you know, they're not mouths to feed. They're lives that add to something. I mean, my wife and I constantly comment on our daughter, who just who's like just turned nine months. Um, what we, what we keep saying is that she's such a little person. Yes. Right? Yes. She's not mouth to feed. She has a personality has even a personality. now. personality. Sure. And she adds such silliness and ridiculousness and frustration and <laughs> life. She adds life adds to it. Life. It's like she doesn't subtract money. Sure. I mean, she does. But, that's, but like, that's not the point. That doesn't matter. It's like she adds life and thinking it in those terms. When you disconnect sex from family and home, which means you disconnect it from procreation, you disconnect it from marriage and any concept of love and intimacy and actual like true true agape love, faithful, loyal love. You disconnect it from all that and it just becomes an act in and of itself that can just be done with anybody. I mean, the way Chesterton described it is like it just basically becomes a cigarette. Hmm. You know, light it up, take a few puffs, throw it away. Yeah, yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Right? Who even thinks about it? It becomes disposable, and disposable things are boring. Who cares about the, you know, plastic plates and cups you throw away? Just another thing we consume. Yep. Right. Um, it, it dawned on me that uh, one of the reasons that uh, birth rates may go down is that uh, women are l- less secure. Um, and as I was talking about before, that... Uh, that women, I think, primarily need to have some security in their lives. And again, these are generalizations, I know, but I think they're relatively true. And uh, I think men men don't think in terms of security for themselves as much as they they think of security for their for their their wives and their their girls. But but women themselves need that kind of security in order to be able to build that home and and care for children. They need to be uh, looked after a little bit, protected. Not that they're not strong in many, many ways, but uh, but they need that kind of security. And so if they can't get that security, it gives them um, anxieties. And I think I was reading about the mental health uh, statistics as well as these others, and it seems that uh, women are more prone to be um, depressed, clinically depressed, uh, by, on the basis of two to one to men. Yeah. Isn't that something? And I, I wondered if maybe that didn't have anything to do with it. If you have been told that your desire for your basic sort of inner, inmost desire for security and family and home uh, is is poo pooed in some way by the society around you, uh, and at the same time, uh, you and your husband or, or fiance are unable to make enough money getting out of college or whatever to be able to pay all of your debts until later on in your life. 
uh, so you're feeling that time going by and your biological clock ticking off and and uh, and and not having enough to be able to take care of children or have children, so you're putting the children off too. Um, it's not. It's not. It wouldn't be surprising to me to find out that there's a connection between all that and yeah. and anxiety and and depression. Yeah. What's going through my mind right now is like if somebody asks us, "Well, what the heck do you want us to do?" Yeah. So like, well, what do we do now? We agree with you that the center of a social life, center of society, and maybe even the center of human life, it's another argument, the home is central. Yes. Family life in a home, that's central. That's an orientation. That's a world where material and spiritual goods harmonize together. Right. That's where true humanness sort of blossoms and flourishes and grows. Okay, fine, we agree. <laughs> well, what are we supposed to do? And I was thinking, because I was thinking, like, logically speaking, because I'm trying to push this, because we need to be, like, fair about this, which we are. We need to be fair about this and just push it to its logical extreme. Not just logical stream, to its logical conclusion. If the true ideal is everything oriented around the home, with us men and women, our lives oriented to building that thing, yes. then what do you do, what are we supposed to do in a society like ours that is on the right and the left a materialist sort of society? You know, where it is oriented exclusively towards material goods. And spiritual goods are private, and it's nice if you have fun with it, but they're not the ultimate importance. And what I was thinking of, you know, well, just what I was thinking is like, if women were listening, it's like, well, what do you want? To, or what are we supposed to do? Quit all our jobs and go home? I mean, logically speaking, someone can make an argument that the ideal society is set up where everyone is oriented towards home, with somebody staying home to build up the home, and somebody going outside the home to supply the home so it can be built up. All right. Someone could logically make that argument. However, what I was thinking in my mind was, thank God for the Babylonian exile in the Old Testament. Hmm. Because I remember at, in my church, we're going through Daniel. And I remember, and I guess I should even say, thank God specifically for the book of Daniel. Because Daniel gets ripped from his home and gets thrown into Babylon, just like everyone else did. Mm -hmm. And there's that injunction in Isaiah or Ezekiel somewhere about how There'll be prophets telling you that, you know, we're going to get out of this in a matter of years. And thus saith the Lord, don't listen to any of them. You're going to be stuck here for the time I said. So settle in, build homes, raise children, marry off your daughters, marry off your sons. That's Jeremiah. Right, yeah, there it is, Jeremiah. And pray for the peace of the city that I put you in. That's right. Right? I remember when, you know, Daniel had a job in the imperial court looking over, like, the magi and the astrologers and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it's mind-boggling to me that this Jewish boy who probably had, you know, the, the law and the Torah that was against stuff like that in some capacity was made the head of that and was the best at it. Like, mm -hmm. he was the mm -hmm. best guy at that job. Mm -hmm. Like, the job he was placed in, he showed excellence, right? But I was thinking about when he was under the Medes and the Persians and Darius, I think it was, did that stupid law that got him thrown in the lion's den. There's this moment where, like, the guys, you know, conspire against Daniel and they convince Darius to write this law, but for a month everybody should kind of worship him as God. Which, of course, Darius is like, cool. You know, he signs up by the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel hears about it and says Daniel goes up to his upper room where he has windows open always to Jerusalem where he always prays three times a day. And everyone points it out as, like, the bravery of Daniel and the faithfulness of Daniel, which it is. In addition to that, we should note, Daniel's upper room with open windows is no tabernacle or temple. Mm -hmm. All right? 
but it's what he could do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Where he was. Right. And right. so what our listeners need to understand is, as Christians, in a sense, the whole world and all of its systems, no matter how good or bad or however they're oriented, they're all Babylon. This is not your, to just wrap it all up nice with a bow, this is not your home right. or the capital H. That's right. But what you, so what you ought to do is try and make your home as much as like home of the capital H as you can. And even a cup of cold water or, you know, five loaves, two fishes, you know, your little snack is something that Jesus can make great. Amen. Right? Amen. So don't feel like, I, I, I feel like it's wrong when, to not recognize where you are. You know, too many people might get excited. I don't know how much influence we have, but too many people might hear things and get excited and be like, I'm going to revolutionize my entire thing. And just nothing in their life is built to support that whatsoever. Sure. And then other people will feel like, so what do you want us to do? Like, I'll quit our jobs and make it sound impossible because they look at that radical transformation. I'm like, no, what you need to be is like Daniel. You Faithful where you are. Faithful where you are. That's right. What is your upper room with open windows? Yeah. Yeah, that's what you need. Yeah, to it, it's very easy to think to look at our society today and say, "Well, what these guys are talking about is completely impossible." We're overwhelmed by everything driving in the other way, in the other direction, yeah. at full speed. Right? How can we possibly do this? But it, you're right; it's a matter of simply putting one brick on top of the other to rebuild the wall, or open the window and pray like you can wherever you are, and and live out your your life faithfully. I'm more and more convinced that God doesn't call us to accomplish these things. He calls us to faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And so what faithfulness looks like in every generation is going to be a little different. Yeah. And even in everybody's individual lives is going to be a little different. But you can be faithful in the midst of the of the uh, Babylon that you find yourself in. We are definitely not the majority. Oh, this no. this approach is not the majority approach in our society, no, and it's very much like Daniel, very much like uh, the exile living in Babylon. But that was the order that God gave uh, in Jeremiah to uh, to settle down, to build houses, to make homes, as it, as it were, and uh, to marry your children off and have them marry your children and um, uh, encourage them to have children. Then that's what's that's what it's all about. That's the purpose of it all. Um, and so I think when we we become so self-absorbed that we are no longer interested in having children, then we've done a, our, our whole society a, a disservice. It's not honoring our parents, it's not honoring God, and it's not honoring those who would come later. One of the reasons I think that heterosexual marriage is so important is because it's the only way we can make kids. And even homosexual marriages like to think that they can raise kids, but they can't make them. Right. It's simply biologically impossible. And so there's a unique relationship between a man and a woman that has to be protected and honored. Um, And if it's not going to be that way, then I think it's going to undo the fabric of our very culture. Well, maybe we should... Take take a breather. (laughs) That's a lot of stuff to to think about. And, you know, I should say, I I feel convicted... This interest that I've got in these particular subjects is simply my own interest. I'm not by any means saying I'm an expert in this field. This is not my field. I'm a musician. What do I know? (laughs) 
but I mean, it's, it's I'm, I want to dig in just because I, I care about you know what's going on, and I want to find out yeah. what's what's happening. I want to see what the causes and effects are of all these different ideas in the world, and I think that's what the center is really all about. Mm-hmm. We're act we're talking about ideas here and how ideas influence uh, our culture and how it affects and changes and has consequences within the culture. Uh, so I'm certainly not putting myself up here as a a psychologist who knows how to make these connections properly or even a good statistician. I'm just reading. But uh, I am interested, and I think we all need to be curious a little bit about how these things work, and that's all I'm calling right. it. You're not an expert. You're just a caricature. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm not a caricature. <laughs> um, okay, what about recommendations? Let me find the title for it. I haven't read it yet, but I'm interested in reading it. Well, then I'll, you, you got, I'll, yeah, I'll start. Mine is silly. But um, there's this weird, like, this is one of the weird vagaries of culture and just how, what did Luke say to, uh, in the episode eight, nobody's ever really gone, right? Nothing's ever really gone. It just kind of comes back around. There was something about the millennial generation that got super nostalgic for old stuff. Mm. And so we get all nostalgic for, like, you know, we think classic, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s rock is, like, really fun. I wonder if the Zoomers will think the you know '90s was fun. I don't know, but anyway, or that, or like the retro video game movement, or you know these TV shows and stuff that are have like '80s nostalgia in them. There's a lot of nostalgia and throwback stuff. One of the interesting ways that cashed out is sort of a resurgence in appreciation for vinyl. Yes, vinyl albums, which I got like that bug kind of bit me. Like we had a record player on my parents in my parents' house all growing up. And we hardly ever used it. You know, I don't think we ever used it. It just kind of sat on top of the, the six-CD-racked stereo system with the double subwoofers. And it was just kind of like, I looked at it and I was like, I looked at it with wonder and awe. I was like, what is this strange, archaic device? <laughs> well, I remember, I think for like a wedding present, my wife bought me, for us really, she bought me a record player. They had like a radio and also like a thing to plug in your iPod, but it was a record player. And we just started collecting vinyl and it's so much fun. And the latest acquisition was, you know, my favorite band of all time, My Epic, who's like a contemporary Christian band, and they're all like millennial age. Typically, when they release an album, they release a vinyl version of the album. Oh, yeah. So I bought one of their vinyls, and it just, it was so fun and so exciting. So I am going to recommend to you people vinyl, all right? Get some classic stuff, but you know what? See if there's not vinyls of some of your favorite contemporary stuff, and just enjoy vinyl. It's good to own physical things sometimes. Yes. Nothing wrong with digital copies. My phone is loaded to the brim with stuff, and I'm you know, never going to replace my entire library because that's ridiculous. But just having a physical copy of it, there's just something about it. It's kind of like probably something connected to like books versus e-readers or something like that uh-huh, but uh-huh. i'm just going to recommend vinyl in general record players are pretty cheap vinyl shops exist and there's amazon so vinyl that's all i have to say <laughs> enjoy well you're welcome you you'll you'll appreciate this i have uh, you know I, col- I used to you know i was a music major and i had to learn a lot of music and a lot of them in grad school, we're on vinyl. So, right, so you got like you got all I kinds of orchestral boxes stuff. Boxes and boxes and boxes of vinyl recordings. See, that I, have, I have carried around with me for years. My wife is completely unhinged about it. Eh. She says every time we move, we have to move these boxes and boxes. Why don't we just take them to the library? And I say, no, 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 no. Those are my recordings. Yeah, I I have to have the those. One, that's the one thing I don't have is any 
orchestral or some oh, symphonic yeah? music. Oh, yeah? Oh, man, I've got a lot of that. Well, I was fascinated to hear about a new book that's come out. I haven't read it yet, so I can't recommend it that way, but it sounds interesting enough to want to uh, to read. It's by a, 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 an Englishman, a, a, a historian called Tom Holland. I've heard that. Name. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Does and, he play Spider-Man? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can't. No. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Tom Holland is an Englishman, a uh, historian, well-known historian, mm-hmm. and he's written a book called Dominion, The Making of the Western Mind. Ooh. And it's all about the influence of Christianity on Western civilization, which is right up our street here at the center. Mm-hmm. But what really fascinates me about it is that this fellow is not a Christian. Yeah. And uh, he lost his faith as a young, younger fellow. And as far as I know, hasn't come back to it. But what he's seeing as an honest historian is impossible to deny, you see. And so while he shows the, the problems that Christians have caused in the world, he certainly doesn't shy away from that. This is, this is my reading of the blurbs about it, mind you. I haven't read the book yet. Uh, so he understands some of the things that have gone wrong. He, at the same time, in a sense, begrudgingly admits that if it weren't for Christianity, we wouldn't have an awful lot of things. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about just material things. I'm talking about, um, you know, moral life yeah. um, and uh, the, the doing away of superstition. We don't, we don't, uh, you know, uh, we don't uh, burn our children, you know, to Molech yeah. anymore. That kind of stuff, you know. So. Um, just reading a little of the blurb here, he says, Christianity is the most enduring and influential legacy of the ancient world. You can't deny that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you do deny it, what you're really doing is sticking your head in the sand. So what is this influence? And uh, I'm interested in what Tom has to say. If you deny Dr. its Holland. influence and the magnitude of its influence, then you can no longer adequately explain the world. That's it. That's it. You're, you're looking at things, but you can't see them anymore. So uh, I'm I'm recommending this even though I haven't read it yet. But I'm right, so something I'm going to be reading. Recommending it with an asterisk. That's right. That's right. Uh, but from what I understand about it, it's a very worthwhile book. Right. All right. That's all we got for today. This has been from the center, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.